This is episode number 354 with Yoni Asia of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, Founder Fam? Welcome back to another Founder interview. My name is Nathan Chan, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. And today, I say this often, but you guys are really in for an absolute treat. Uh, once again, another incredible founder, Yoni. He's the founder of a company called eToro and I'm going to talk to him about, you know, how he built this incredible empire, uh, getting dinner with Warren Buffett, how he scaled the world's largest social media investment network. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the ads uh, for eToro, like what he's built and his team is incredible. And you're really going to learn as well, basically how he started the company uh, what it's like been like for like working for himself with all the different ups and downs and roller coasters, how he scaled the company sustainably, really thinking around how their company dealt with you know the global financial crisis and like how he went through that, and also why a leader needs to know what success looked like. We talk about his dinner with Warren Buffett, and also. Just so much more around users, how he's built this platform. This is an incredible interview. You guys are going to love it. I really go deep on this one. He was very, very uh, giving with his time and just so helpful. All right, so that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do share this with a friend. We interview some of the craziest successful founders, as you know. We've been doing this podcast for many years. Share this with friends. Leave us a review. That's all we ask. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump in the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? Well, I've always been passionate about trading. I started trading when I was about 13, uh, and, I, I, and I'm a computer scientist by profession. Uh, so I always loved the intersection of technology and finance. 
Uh, and uh, in 2006, uh, my older brother, Ronen, did some work for Bloomberg, and he was doing a, an industrial design master's in the Royal College of Arts. And he always used to make fun of me that I have an accountant fetish, that when I look at, when he looks at what I do, it looks horrible with multiple screens and charts and excels. Uh, and we started brainstorming about how can we simplify the user experience? How can we hack the user experience to make trading and investing something that's accessible for more people? Uh, and, and that's how we started Toro, really with the vision of opening the global markets for everyone to trade and invest in a simpler and transparent way. Yeah, wow, crazy. So a uh, 14-year journey thus far, you guys are now the world's largest social investment network incredible growth like i'm sure anybody watching this has probably seen your guys ads with like alec baldwin and like you know like massive massive companies so um just to give the audience a little bit of an idea of of those who haven't are not familiar with etoro they've been living under a rock can you give us an idea of the scale of like users team like uh you know gmv like yeah Sure. So uh, we're uh, about a thousand employees in Etoro in 12 uh, global offices. Uh, Etoro today is uh, the world's largest social investment network. We have 16 million registered users who can trade commission-free stock trading, cryptocurrencies, ETFs, commodities, etc. within a social network. So everybody can actually see follow and automatically copy top traders from all around the world. So you actually see people from all around the world, you see their performance, you see what they're investing in. And then if you see someone who generated significant returns over the past five years, you can simply take $1,000 and start copying him in the same place where you can buy shares of Google or buy Bitcoin. Yeah, it's it's an incredible concept. So um, like many people thinking and watching like, how the hell did this start? Like, where do you start to create like a, an a extremely fast growing fintech company where, you know, you guys like you've never done this before. This is your first. Is this your first startup? Uh, for me, this is actually my second startup. Uh, so before that, I founded a company called CD Ride, uh, where we uh, developed and installed cameras on roller coasters so you could you would go to six flags and you would get off the roller coaster and then you'd see a video of your entire ride and you'd get it on a dvd so that was my first startup uh which i i joined uh i, I and and founded just as i left my army service but but i, I think you know we were passionate about um how to simplify access uh, we started sort of building the product itself. I remember when we went and raised money. And again, remember, this is two, I'm, I feel so old. 2007, uh, you know, it's a bit pre-cloud. It's almost pre-social networks. I had a server in my house connected to the internet and a client uh, a desktop app that connected to that server, which was running like fake quotes just to be able to show what we're trying to do. Um, and after uh, we uh, completed the, our, we did a first round of $1.7 million. Um, and nine months after we launched the platform to the world, um, it was uh, extremely sort of 
interesting because we had really no idea where users would come from. Uh, but uh, we brought in people uh, that were sort of experts in online uh, marketing. Uh, and then just users started coming from 100 different countries. Yeah, wow, interesting. Um, so how did you guys get your first users? I don't know if it's the first. The first were, were probably friends and, or family, right? Uh, I, I still remember they, they have like these very sort of low CADs. It's the customer identification. Uh, but I think what we did is once we launched the platform and everything was operational, uh, we just started uh, spending money uh, to acquire customers. So we, we just uh, uh, started putting our ads out there and we started seeing uh, customers sort of come in. And ever since uh, we're, we are uh, a very data driven and ROI sort of performance marketing oriented. Uh, so, you know, any place where we spent a dollar and saw $3 come back, we just kept on spending and pushing. So we had a very a significant scale already the first year of operation we had 5.5 million dollar revenues uh, and the second year of operation we had 17 million dollar revenues so compared to yeah so compared to some startups we really scaled revenues relatively fast yeah wow and and from the sounds of it that's not like obviously network effects was taking place because you've created um, this incredible kind of yeah, social investment network, but at the same time to further fuel and add gasoline to the fire, you guys were using pay, paid advertising from with a performance marketing mindset and, and, and framework. Or, yeah, you know, I don't know if you call it a, a mindset. Is it a mindset or is it a framework? Yeah, performance-driven marketing, yeah. I think it's, it's probably both. Uh, it, it means you're very data-oriented uh, in the way you think about marketing. Yeah. So um, what channels were they back then that you were using? Was it mainly AdWords? I think uh, back then it was pop-ups. You remember pop-ups? Before my time. Oh, man. Yeah. I started doing online stuff like 2013. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, so this was like 2007 was pop-up banners. Uh, I think that's completely disappeared. Um, a lot of affiliates, so we still run a very large affiliate network uh, where we uh, basically pay for uh, performance for referring customers to us. Um, and uh, we were buying media. This was RTB. Like the media was very different back then in 2007. Yeah, wow. I bet you it was much cheaper than it is now, right? And it was cheaper, but eventually, you know, the matrix sort of stayed uh, very similar across the years. So we spent 200, yeah, 200 to $300 cost per acquisition and uh, uh, lifetime value is uh, significantly higher. And across the year, we just scaled this. So we're you know, uh, now at four times higher pace than last year, uh, but, it, but the, the matrix themselves are very similar. That's interesting. Look, one thing I do, I have noticed um, because founder, our company, we're, we're very performance driven. We would spend nowhere near what you guys spend, but we spend a lot of money, like millions of dollars every year. Um, and 
The algorithms are getting smarter, no doubt about it. You know, in any of these platforms, you can really train those those algorithms, and they can go out and find lookalike audiences, customers. You can tell these platforms now what you want your CPAs to be. So. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. Obviously, back then, CPMs would be significantly lower, but it sounds yeah. like the, return, the, the, the algorithms have gotten so much smarter that, yeah, it's interesting to hear you saying that the returns are, are very similar. So it sounds like you guys are going for, is it like, yeah, above a, a 3x CAC to LTV? Yeah. Yep. Okay, interesting. Um, so... Yeah, um, I'm curious then, uh, so when you raised money, um, your seed round, that was mainly to build the platform, not so much on user acquisition. When we raised the initial $1.7 million, it was mostly for building the platform. Uh, but as soon as we started spending money on marketing, uh, we did our uh, like B round, which was two plus two, so about $4 million. Uh, and that helped us fuel marketing. Yep, got you. And then, uh, yeah, what happened next? Uh, long journey. First of all, this was 2008, right? So my RB round, why, why was it two plus two? Because uh, it was 2008 and the world was collapsing. Uh, and for somebody who sets, uh, you know, uh, a financial, this was before the term fintech existed, right? So we were like an internet company, uh, that's also providing financial services. Um, and then you realized that the banks where the money of your clients are could all go bankrupt the next day. And that was like a huge, whoa, what do we do? Like, and we started taking the money and, and spreading it across multiple banks um, because this, it was really scary, right? You had Lehman Brothers going bankrupt uh, but it was also very very exciting times to be in the markets somewhat similar to today but this year we haven't really seen a drop uh, but I uh, we definitely see something very big happening today so what we've seen uh, other than that we've uh, sort of focused on we constantly try to focus on what succeeded uh, from the product perspective, from an engagement point of view. Um, so again, I would generally say this is probably today sort of uh, no sort of common knowledge, uh, but you but you should look at what your users are using your product for and really figure out what drives engagement of these users and double down on that and double down on that. And for us, this was the social features. So we originally launched uh, basically the trading platform uh, just, just with chat and profiles. So the idea of the social network, uh, the idea of copy trading came later on because what we saw is that people were asking one another, what are you trading? So and and the the constant dialogue of users were hey you told me yesterday you bought this uh, do you still own it so we looked at the chat and then we said okay so if everybody's asking constantly people what are th what are they doing let's just show them what they're doing uh, and that's how we built the social network and once we had the social network out there and people's uh, performance was public. 
uh, it was a, sort of a very obvious aha moment to say, hey, if you can see what other people are doing, why not automatically copy them? Uh, so that was sort of the, the progression. And at that point, I think that led us to also raise uh, sort of bigger capital. So we raised, I think, back then $10 million from Spar Capital. Um, that was our C round. Uh, and that was really in the beginning of the social network of, of, of figuring out that we are a social investing network. Mm, interesting. So the first version of your product wasn't what we see today. You've kind of built upon it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I, it's it's funny because I yeah I thought I would have figured that you guys would uh, would have started that way. That's what I thought. Um, but it makes sense even if you think about it because I I actually started trading probably back in 2009, 2010. And as part of, you know, where I used to do my research was these trading forums where that's where a lot of yeah. conversation goes down. You want to see who's legit, who actually knows what they're talking about. And that transparency, it's really interesting to see the performance of, of others. And I think, you know, when I was trading, I also went to a lot of forums but one of the problem with these forums is people are hiding behind sort of a nickname and you don't know what they're doing. And that's the fun part of Vitoro. When you talk to somebody, you actually see his portfolio and his track record. So you can't have somebody tell you he's good if he is bad. Uh, and you, you actually see what people own in their portfolios. Uh, and that created a lot of dialogue. Uh, in the platform and a lot of trust between people on the platform. Mm, yeah, no, and then obviously accelerated network effects. Probably, I assume you had some refer friends. Uh, yeah. Yep, 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 very smart. Okay, interesting. So what, what, what happened next? What was the next kind of step change of growth that, that happened? The next uh, step was when we did our D round, um, and that was led by Ping An from uh, China. Uh, and then we decided to uh, basically expand eToro into Asia, uh, into Australia as well. Um, although we're just doubling down now on Australia, uh, which has been very successful this year. Um, uh, so that led us, so we did two things then. One is we had strategics come in. So uh, uh, three large financial institutions invested in Toro, uh, and we were trying to explore how can we work together with financial institutions. Um, that eventually led us to a complete and utter failure of realizing you can't work with financial institutions. This was, again, this was 2015, 16. Uh, it still burns but maybe now things are a bit different. But what we we were we really wanted strategics to invest in eToro so we can work with a bank. And what we found out in all of these cases is the bank has a ventures arm and they would invest because they like what you do and they want to see it maybe in the bank. But the bank has a you know a brokerage arm which is competing with you. And it's very, very hard to overcome that cannibalization. Um, and banks view, uh, and, and that is that is changing now, but 
historically banks view any type of software company as a vendor. So, you know, you would like go to a bank and you'd say, I want to do this in this corporation. Traditionally, the bank would say, so give me a quote for your uh, software fees and give me your code. That's that's how banks work. Uh, they don't want to share revenues or share information with anyone. Uh, I think now that's changing. Uh, but this was really uh, a sort of, you know, swimming against the current trying to work with uh, finan- large financial institutions back then. Why did you want to work with large financial institutions? Why not stay independent? So we constantly looked at the fact that, you know, we are spending more and more marketing dollars to constantly bring more and more users. And uh, one of the key challenges of building a, a fintech company is you need to gain a lot of trust because people trust you with their money, right? So when you open an account in eToro, you set up a brokerage account and you deposit, whether it's $200 or $20,000, you fund the account with eToro. Uh, and we realized that we needed somehow to bridge that trust gap uh, and we thought potentially if a large bank took our platform, that could be a great uh, way for both the bank to bring us users, right? So instead of the marketing dollars, we have a distribution channel. Uh, plus, you as a user should be very comfortable sending us a lot of money if, if it's in the bank, right? Um, so, so so that's how we thought about it. Um, and... Uh, I think now we're actually setting, resetting this uh, uh, sort of thinking uh, as we're thinking about uh, new markets. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. And you said like, yeah, you obviously tried... uh three, four years ago to, to go down this path. How did you work out that it wasn't possible back then? And how did you work out to say, you know what, we need to scrap this project? Because I think when you have a company that has traction and when you are winning, you, sometimes as a founder, you can feel invincible and you tend to persist sometimes longer than you should so how did you, in this instance, gauge that this was a project worth abandoning or putting pause on? 
Um, so first of all, I have a great management team. Uh, so and in a lot of cases, you know, I'm the classic entrepreneur. I want to do everything at the same time. But, you know, then reality sort of uh, keeps track on you. Uh, so I, I think in all of these cases, eventually, um, management or specific uh, uh, vice president came and said, listen, the ROI on this project is simply not good enough. We'll, we're, we keep on spending more and more efforts, and I don't think uh, we're going to see uh, results from this project. Um, and I think uh, when we see the, you know, something that is being a bit futile, uh, then we learned how to sort of close it or shut it down. Mm. And what would you say to founders um, that are watching and listening that perhaps they are working on a project right now and they don't have a next level management team? How do you how do you train that? Um, I guess gut intuition or like yeah, just to know when to say no or when to stop and move on to the next thing or you know what I mean? Because it is tough, right? Yeah. Uh, it's tough, but again, I, I think a part of this is being very data oriented. Um, so I am a freak of data. Uh, so every morning when I wake up, I have about like 40 reports, uh, commission report, uh, uh, daily reports per region, per channel, uh, acquisition reports. So like every day I have these huge amounts of data sort of flooding me so and i want to know like for i have the german region manager i'm getting the same report as he does which is uh, the acquisition report the revenues report and the data report on germ on germany but he's getting it on germany i'm getting it on germany but also on all the regions in etoro so that's like i know 40 50 emails that open my day and then out of that, uh, once you start looking at data and you sort of get hooked to data, um, I would say uh, if something, if the data shows that something doesn't work, you eventually need to kill it. That's really interesting. But, but that's also also something that's very important. And I think it took us a couple of years to realize that it's very important to set your KPIs uh, and your KPIs are not revenues. Uh, revenues is a derivative of your KPIs. So, because your KPIs are the company's strategy, right? So, if I, I'm looking for the largest, let's say, uh, assets, right? Assets under management, potentially I would only bring one client with a billion dollars, right? Uh, instead of uh, a million clients uh, with a thousand dollars each, um, and and I think setting that up and being able to crystallize what the main KPIs uh, are you looking at right now, uh, I think that was very important for us. And I, I saw something that really amazed me a couple of times, and I'm I'm not sure why it still amazes me. Is you take a company and you set a couple KPIs. And then the year goes by and you change the KPIs of the company. Uh, you change KPIs to people. You you see the entire organization shift towards something different. Like it's you, you almost it's almost like you don't need to do anything else but change KPIs. And suddenly you see 
entire organization sort of shift to where you are. So the best way to do it is corporate strategy documents, so which says vision, mission, values, this is who we want to become, this is how we want to get there. And that describes the sort of the why, the strategy uh, and the how. And then once you set to that clear KPIs, it really helps everybody sort of understand where they're going. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, it's so critical and it does, and, it, and it's, it's for whatever reason quite common in companies I've found that oftentimes the leaders or the individuals or the team oftentimes don't know what success looks like. And uh, it's very, very important to show individuals in your company and your team what success looks like because people want to achieve, right? They, they, they really do. And if you give them the opportunity and you set the goalposts, like you said, with the KPIs and you have a strong, compelling vision and then you have strong values, which is the DNA of, of how you want your organism uh, as, as a company, as a living being to operate, then it can be very, very powerful and people will rally behind it. Definitely. And I, and I think it's also um, sort of people should educate themselves. Uh, so uh, HR and organizational development uh, is is a job, right? Uh, it's a profession. Uh, I, I've always been uh, relatively close uh, to sort of making sure I understand, for example, I'm a fan of Adijas, uh, who, who runs a life cycle of companies and like uh, every manager uh, does the survey to see whether he's a producer, an entrepreneur, uh, integrator or an administrator. Uh, and then sort of at every stage of the company, you need to have different people. Um, and, and even today, so I remember going to this course in 2010 of Adijas, uh, and now I'm 10 years later, and now I have 50 uh, managers in Itoro doing courses on the theory of Adidas on organizational behavior, blah, blah, blah. So, so again, it's, it's co- constantly learn and also uh, remember that you need to teach what you learn. So sometimes as a manager, uh, you 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 constantly see things and you change your mind and and you were here and now you're here, but you get disconnected from uh, the the field, and you need to constantly tell them, listen, I looked, I realized something, I learned something. This is why I learned what I've learned, and then you teach them what you've learned, and then they align with you, because otherwise they don't understand. You know, you're like shift here and you don't understand that they, they're confused why why did why did we change anything hmm. yeah i agree communication especially as company scale is so critical and it becomes a really big problem if it's not a focus and yeah to be honest like that is something that i struggle with personally as a founder <laughs> i need to get better at that uh, but we're not talking about me we're talking about you um so I'm curious as well, you said that you get these reports every day on your desk and you're, you're obsessed with data. Is that because you are looking for patterns and trends to further capitalize and allocate resources to fuel growth? It's to make sure everything works. So if I look at like uh, the registrations from yesterday, right? So 
let's see. I can probably open it up here. Um, so I'm guessing uh, we should have something like 30,000 new registrations yesterday. Um, and as a manager, uh, I have this sort of pulse to what are the, again, the main KPIs, what are the main KPIs, uh, and what are the main ratios that are healthy for the company, right? So if, for example, I expect uh, registrations to be 30,000, and suddenly they're not 30,000, they're 15,000, then I, I know I need to drill down and figure out why why is it 15,000? So what I'll do is I'll read down to the countries, and I'll look at the trend of the countries. And then I'll try to figure out if it's not countries, is it channels? Um, and uh, maybe, uh, and that's why everything that I look at is uh, yesterday, this week, this month, this quarter, this year, uh, today, and uh, last eight week, uh, the same day, eight week average. So it's like a very clear way to look at things and just try to identify if something is wrong or you're on track. Yep, got you. So it's the pulse. You're looking for a pulse, but trends as well. That's always interesting too as well. Yeah. Okay. Switching gears, I'd love to talk about uh, Warren Buffett dinner. Can you tell us the story? That was awesome. Sure. Um, so first of all, it's, uh, uh, it's a reminder to be uh, persistent. By the way, if anything I would tell entrepreneurs is uh, one word, persistent. Be persistent, like VC doesn't answer you, send them an email again, send them an email again. Uh, and I'm saying that because like uh, I, I'm obviously a big fan of Warren Buffett, um, read his books. Uh, you know, I love capital markets. He sort of represents what capital markets are in all their glory, right? So this is, this person is the person who made the most amount of money in capital markets. And what's very different between him and others, he always says it's like it's simple, right? If you, uh, you anything he does, he says, no, no, it's simple. Investing is simple. Just invest in companies you understand, invest in companies who have a moat, uh, and invest, you click for 20 years, right? So there's, you know, stuff like renaissance and hedge funds and algo traders, but that is a very... He, he says everybody can and should invest their money in capital markets, which is really what eToro represents as well. Uh, so uh, when I saw Justin Sun, so I, I was aware that it, uh, every year there's uh, basically an auction uh, for the, uh, it's, I think it's usually supposed to be lunch. In our case, it was dinner uh, uh, for lunch with Buffett. And Justin, uh, who is the founder of Tron, Justin Sun, I think paid $4.6 million for it. And like the minute I read it, I started sending him email, telegram, WhatsApp, like bombarding him. And, and after a while, like he was, uh, let me think about it. Uh, um, and then he kind of disappeared and the dinner was postponed. And then suddenly uh, their, their guys call me and they're like, uh, can you come to uh, Omaha? I'm like, yay! So I was quite persistent with it. Uh, and the dinner itself was, for me, mind-blowing. Um, really a, a, a life-changing event. And the reason is 
as I grew eToro, people constantly told me, I can't tell people that investing is easy or that investing is simple. And, uh, you know, uh, on the day-to-day of our life where you're regulated and you constantly need to give disclaimers uh, and you constantly need to warn people from the risks of what they're doing. But but really the purpose of why we started eToro was to, to, to make investments something that's simple and easy. Um, but, but along the years, something sort of made that put a lot of disclaimers around it, right? And I was sitting at the dinner and I listened to what Warren Buffett says. And none of it, by the way, was surprising. He was right, he was right to the word to the book. I could complete his sentences because I read his books. Uh, so it's like, and suddenly it, like it hit me, I know what he's going to say. And I know what he's going to say because he's super persistent in what he's always been saying. Uh, and it's very similar things. Um, and the reason he's so persistent as a person is because if you ask Warren Buffett, what would you be if you weren't the biggest investor in the world? He said the teacher. And that was, uh, and that's what a teacher does, right? The teacher chooses sort of what to teach and sticks with that and just does that and, and uh, constantly, right? And he says, uh, there's, uh, Benjamin's Graham book, read it, uh, the intelligent investor, read it, follow it, and you'll make money. Simple, right? And, and what's amazing is how, how it's th- that it's not common today. Uh, this is 70 years after I think uh, the intelligent investor came out to the market. I think for a lot of people, they still that it's not common knowledge that investing in the markets is easy and that you can generate double digit returns across many, many years um, just by investing in companies you believe in and understand. And and, and that was for me like uh, an aha moment, just like, wow, because it connects to what we're building in eToro. So the minute I came back, I started the training uh, session for our popular investors, the ones who are being copied in value investing. And we created features for value investing. But but what it really sort of blew my mind is it's exactly what we're doing in eToro and what we're saying in eToro. But the real, real benefit is think 10 years from today, in eToro, you'll see hundreds of thousands of portfolios with 15 years track record. Who has these track records, right? It takes like, it's hard to build track records. Uh, but on eToro, that's the basic track records are being built. And people are actually generating double digit returns across seven years, across eight years, across nine years. So that dinner, like, um it was it really solidified some of your thoughts that had that you had but you kind of i guess were, were being held back um because of yeah the disclaimers and and all these other things and now yeah that that's crazy that like it wasn't anything new or profound you think like oh you catch up with someone like 
you know, Warren Buffett, and people ask me this all the time, like, oh, you interviewed Richard Branson, what was like the profound thing, like all these different things, but it's not really that, it's, it's really, um, yeah, people, it, like it's stuff that you would read about, it's stuff that you would know about, but that experience really solidifies your thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, yeah, I, I felt like there was a hammer hitting my head suddenly, and all of his books suddenly mean something more significant. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So the experience to the realization, that's amazing. So look, um, this is an incredible conversation, Yoni, having a lot of fun um, chatting with you. Uh, so a couple last questions. Uh, one I have to ask about um, the famous Alec, Alec Baldwin ads. Uh, they must convert like crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, so so that was, uh, for, I'm a big fan of Alec Baldwin. It was amazing, by the way, to meet him. Uh, and to uh, sort of see him in action. So super talented guy uh, with a very wide range, right? He is a salesperson, he's a comedian, he's a serious person, he's Trump. Uh, so, uh, and what I thought is funny is my kids are exactly the same age as his kids. Uh, so I, I thought it's funny because like our we, we're targeting millennials, right? This year is the year of the rise of the millennial investor all around the world. And millennials, uh, you know, uh, are, are reaching their prime. They're having kids, right? But when you have kids and a job, suddenly you have so much things to do. You don't have time for you to think, how do I invest my money? Um, and, and, and that's why we, you know, we built copy trading uh, and the popular investor program. So you won't need to trade on your own all the time and have all the ideas of what to trade and what to buy on your own. You can simply copy other people. Um, and what I found funny is like him being basically a young father, just like me, although he could be the age, you know, he's uh, I think 25 years probably older than us. Yeah, no, that's cool. And I'm curious, like, when you worked with him, did you give a few different ad angles or there was just the one ad angle and the one script or like, and how long did you have with him? How did that work? One day. One day, a whole one day. day. One day, one day, it's a whole day, yeah. One day, a whole day, fascinating, fun day. Uh, but be, and before that, a lot, a lot of work on the scripts um and obviously a couple of days of setting up the the sort of uh, the shooting uh place um so uh a lot of details go into the scripts because it's it's not only the scripts like i i used to join the creative sessions at the beginning and sort of laid the tone but then it got broken down to a lot of like to multiple scenes and to more, like each scene you need to have from a different angle. So you're like, psh, 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 now move this, move that. Very like, it becomes a, an operation. Yep, because you want to get as much leverage for that content as possible. For that one day, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. So how many, how many angles or many scripts did you have just out of curiosity? Hundreds, hundreds. Really, wow. Hundreds, yeah. Wow, and... Um, he was shooting out of that whole day, how long? Like six, seven hours? It, yeah, at least I, I would even say more. Yeah, okay, wow. All right, so you, yeah, you really, so you've got heaps of different angles, heaps of different scripts, 
ones that you can mesh together. Yeah. You'll try different hooks at the start, like all different things, and you guys just exactly. testing them all. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. Very interesting. Um, awesome. Well, look, we work towards wrapping up, Yoni, because I'm mindful of your time. Um, uh, two last questions. One, any final words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our audience of early stage startup founders? And then two, uh, where's the best place people can go to find out more about yourself and also eToro? Sure. So again, as I said before, persistence. Uh, find something you believe in uh, and be persistent uh, in getting what you want. Um, be open with others. So tell, don't, don't try to be secretive. Uh, tell people about what you want to do because that's the only way ideas can actually grow is through dialogue and brainstorm with more people. Um, and what was the last question? Yeah, where, where can people find out more about eToro and yourself? It, uh, it's very simple, eToro.com or download our mobile app. And then once you have the mobile app, you can actually write Yoni Asia uh, and you'll see my profile on eToro. You will see my track record, which is not bad. I did this year 60% returns. Uh, and last year, I think I did another very nice, like 55% returns. So you can see my profile. You can see what I'm investing in. And you can ask me questions directly on my social network and my product. Love it. Well, look, thanks so much for your time, Yoni. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on all of your success. And yeah, thank you for what you do. You're building an incredible product. And uh, yeah, you're an absolute pleasure to speak with. Thank you very, very much, Nathan. It's been a pleasure. I hope uh, it helps some uh, entrepreneurs in their uh, way. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.